I've had an opportunity to come here a couple of times before, as, as Wade said, and I've always enjoyed it. And um, I do bring you hellos from Ozark Christian College, where I and my wife teach. And we enjoy the partnership that we have with your church and so many others. And, and we, we I, honestly, I've always enjoyed the students that you've sent. And so it's fun to be here together with you today. So I do have a question for you. Um, <clears throat> now, I'm not going to ask you to share your stories. Don't worry. Uh, but here's the question. Have you ever said something? Like you ever said words that you immediately regretted. Okay, I'm getting nods. Yeah, like as soon as the words came out of your mouth, you're like, I can't take that back. You know, like we live in a world where what's said is said. And that was just said by me, you know. Um, I do work with college students and Ozark is something of like a marriage factory. It's a little bit famous for, you know, producing husbands and wives. And so that means I get to, to spend a decent amount of time with young husbands who are really good at this, like saying things that they immediately regret, you know? And I, I actually came across this list not too long ago of testimonies from, uh, from young mommies about things that their husbands said while they were in the delivery room. Yeah, some of them were pretty interesting. One of the first ones I noticed was this guy, and I, I don't know that any of these were my students, although I could tell you any number of my male students who could end up saying things like this. One of them said, honey, you're only at a zero and you have 10 centimeters to go. You better toughen up. <laughs> I hope somebody pulled them aside and said, buddy, you're at year one and you have about 50 or 60 of these to go, so you better wisen up, okay? Like that is not what you want to say. This one guy, um, I, I, I take him to be something of a comedian because whenever his wife, you know, sort of she had a contraction and so she was like yelling and moaning about this and she finished, he just, he said, wow, that sounded like an octopus falling down a stepladder. <laughs> Funny guy, you know, like probably not the time. Just discern the moment. Jokes are for later. But the joke is better than what another one said. One of them said, um, it had been a long process. You know, you ladies know how this is. And, and this husband said, man, if I could have known this was going to take so long, I'd have worn more comfortable shoes. <laughs> like you're just sitting there. I'm standing this all time. This lady, Lindsay, I, I got to read this one as a quote. She said, uh, my husband's first word as my daughter came out was, she looks just like my brother, Carl. But probably my favorite one is from a lady named Jill. She said uh, that uh, they were hours into labor. And then her husband says to her, uh, hey, do you care if I take my mom home real quick? She said, I just looked at him without saying a word. And he sat his bottom down and mom found her own way home. <laughs> and we shouldn't be too hard, though, or at least I shouldn't be too hard. Um, I blocked out from my memory the things that I, you know, said when I was first married as a young husband. But I do remember being younger. I remember one time when I was 19, um, I think I was freshman at college, and uh, a buddy of mine and I, we were taking a road trip from Joplin up to Nebraska. We went to Ozark, and we were going up to Nebraska to visit some girls. And, and so we went up there, some old friends of ours, and we had a good weekend, and, I mean, all was fine. I promise no sending happened. But we were coming home, and uh, it was like 2 a.m., and I, it, driving through Kansas, and that is, it's not fun at any time of day, especially not 2 a.m., and I want to be home. And uh, so I was driving kind of fast. And I, like I was driving about 115 miles an hour, which I don't recommend. So young men, don't follow me in this. So I'm flying down the road. And then I see those lights. And I'm not going to tell you what I said then. But then later on, like he finally caught up to us. And I pull over and, and he comes up. And it's this older gentleman. And he's pretty kind. And he asked me a question. He said, uh, son, do you have any idea how fast I clocked you at? Now, what I should have said was, no, sir, I do not. But whatever it was, it was entirely too fast. And I am so sorry. But what I actually said was, 
Well, it kind of depends on how long you've been following me. (laughs) Turns out not very long though, because he only clocked me at 107. So I got off a little bit easy, but that's not the point of the story. We all have been there where we say things that we wish we could just take. It's like toothpaste. It won't go back in the tube. Now, sometimes we say things that should never be said. Other times, it's not so much like something you should never say to anybody, but it's like you can't say it to the wrong person in the wrong situation, you know? Like if I said to one of my friends, you know, after we were at the gym playing basketball or whatever, if I said, man, hey, bro, it looks like you put on a few pounds this last month. Well, that's okay. But if, like, I said that to one of you ladies in the lobby after, after the service this morning, like the fact that I called you bro would be the least of my problems, you know? This is not the right time. Not the right place, not the right person. Yeah, a couple of weeks ago, we moved into a new house, my family and I, up in Joplin, and we, um, we had, I'd scheduled some, a guy to come clean the carpets the next day. And so I texted him that evening, and thankfully it was kind of convenient because there was like a garage key code pad and a key code pad on the front door. And so I just shot him a reminder text said, hey, this is Michael DeFazio, uh, 1035 Wilson, just calling to remind you, you're going to come clean our carpets at 10 a.m. tomorrow while we're at work. And uh, just, you could come in either way. The garage code is the front door code is this, 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 this. And uh, just let me know when you're done. Send. A couple minutes later, ding. I look at my phone. You just sent this to the wrong person. I did what? Now I thought to myself, thankfully, like they texted me back. So this is not a crook or a criminal, but I seriously sat down and after like sweating for a couple minutes, realized I had just given the information into my house to a perfect stranger. And so I quickly changed the codes and those sorts of things. But we do this. If I texted that to my sister, no big deal. If I text that to a stranger, yikes, not the right thing to the right person. Why am I saying all this? Well, because what we need to talk about today is not exactly the kind of thing that makes the best sense among relative strangers. And I get it. Y'all don't know me very well. They do say, maybe you've heard this. They say that if you're a guest preacher or speaker, that there are three things that you can talk about that are usually going to kind of cause people to lean in and pay attention. And they are in order, sex, the afterlife, and will there be sex in the afterlife? (laughs) Those are always popular. But those are not the things that we're talking about today. Maybe another time, but not today. No, today I came to preach a text that tells you you're just as bad as the people whose morals you detest. Wow, okay. So whether it's live or in the news or on social media, whomever you're most tempted to point a finger at or to shake your fist at or to lecture or to gossip about or maybe even condemn to their face because the things that they do are so obviously wrong. This text says, you're not as different as you think. So happy Daylight Saving Sunday, everyone, you know? Still a little groggy, wiping the sleep out of our eyes, and yet we have Romans. And if I've not already lost you, maybe you're just interested enough to sort of see if what I'm saying is actually in there. Open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. We are going to cover a lot of ground today. We're actually covering a range of texts that starts in Romans 2, verse 1, and extends all the way to Romans chapter 3, verse 20. That's a lot of words. And so we're going to do a bit of a flyover of sorts and try to capture, if we can, the main point of this uh, of this text. Now, this means that we're going to leave a lot of meat on the bones, a lot of details unexplained. And then that's fine. You guys probably know where to go and how to study this if you want to dig deeper. And I encourage you to do so. But for today, we're going to try to get the main thing. And to do that, we're going to focus especially on how this text begins and ends. 
So let's start with the end of it. Uh, We'll come back to the beginning of two here in just a second. I want to read the end of this text, starting in Romans chapter 3, actually, verse 9. So turn the page over, find Romans 3, 9, and I'm going to read 3, 9 through 20. Here's what the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Rome, and by the Spirit's inspiration comes down to us today. He says, what shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. It says in verse 19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Sometimes I wish Paul would just tell us how he really feels. You know what I mean? I mean, this is not what you call positive affirmation. In 2018, you can say this to some people, maybe like people in power or whatever, but like, you're not supposed to say this to everyone. And yet Paul is saying this to everyone. Now, I do want us to notice what what it seems like Paul is doing in this section of scripture. And so if I could, I'm actually going to ask for some volunteers. You don't have to come up here, but I, this is kind of weird, but I'm going to ask a few of you actually to stand up. So let's do it this way. Do I have anybody in here who is, uh, you know, no disrespect intended, over the age of 50. Anybody over 50? Would, 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 would one of my folks over 50 just stand up anywhere? One of you. Right here down in front. Thank you, ma'am. Okay. Now, do I have anybody, um, let's see, like under the age of 25 in the room? Yeah? Okay. One of you, stand up anywhere, if you would. Who's going to stand for our under 25? Where? There, there you are. Hi. Okay. And since we have two ladies, how about a gentleman in between the ages of 25 and 50? Guy in your 30s or 40s, can you stand up? Okay, down here, good, good. Okay, excellent. Let's keep going to, how many of you, who else that's sitting is, is um, maybe your family is of European descent? Anybody in the room? Yeah, go ahead and stand up if you would. Did I say that? I hope this, like, don't do this if you have a sense, if you're like super sensitive. Hopefully I said that part. Okay, how about anybody of non-European descent? Any histories here? Non-European, I can't see all the hands. If you are, go ahead and stand up. Oh, would you stand up? Is that okay? Yeah. Um, let's see, how about... Any fans of the University of Arkansas football team? Any, I'm like maybe one up there, yeah? How about, uh, ma'am, how about you over there? How about any fans of the the Longhorns? I hear that there are some Texas fans in the place. Yeah, right here, yeah. Okay, Here's here's one, let's just do this because, you know, like we're family, sort of, at least like two of us or three of us or whatever. Any Republicans in the room? Can I get a Republican to stand up? What's funny about this is in the church, usually a church, either like you're afraid to admit you're Republican or you're afraid to admit you're Democrat. And what's great is, I don't know which one's true in this place. So any Democrats in the room, would you stand up? All right. Okay, cool. So look around. Here's, Here's what I think Paul's doing. Now, I think what Paul's doing, he's saying, picture all different kinds of people lined up. Now, in his context, it's like Jew and Gentile. There's probably some young and old. There's some male, female, different types of tension. And he's saying, like, look across the room. So what I want you to do, everybody who's sitting, and if you're standing, you can do this too. Just look across the room at all of the different people who are standing up. 
Paul wants you to look from side to side and see that he's talking about somebody from every group. So maybe you even thought to yourself, I can't believe we're doing this. Like, who are you going to single out? That's the point. Nobody, nobody gets singled out. He says, all, all have are unrighteous. All have, have rejected God. And then to like, just drive home the point. It's not just that he says, if you look side to side, you see that everybody is like bad. It's if you look up and down from top to bottom. So just pick a person who's standing and just look up to top to bottom. Just look them up and down. Go ahead right now. You're allowed to. Look at what Paul says. Let me look at it again. In uh, verse 13, he says, Their throats are open graves and their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips and their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. So we start up here. And then he says, Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways from head to toe. And then, um, what does it say? The way of peace they do not know. There's no fear of God before their eyes. So literally, Paul is looking us up and down and saying, from side to side, we're bad. And top to bottom, we're bad. Y'all can have a seat. Thank you so much for being volunteers in this incredibly interesting exercise. You're never going to volunteer for anything again. (laughs) And so his point seems to be side to side and top to bottom. Everybody's like infected. Everybody's just evil. Nobody's actually like totally worshiping God. Why would you say something like that? This is like mean, strange, it's odd. And it's not that Paul is incapable of saying nice things. He, he doesn't hate these people. Look at what he says. He says nice things elsewhere in this very letter. Chapter 1, verses 8 through 12. He says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. He says, I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. And at the end of the letter in chapter 15, he says, listen, I am fully convinced that you are full of goodness and filled with knowledge and competent to instruct one another. So like at the beginning and the end of the letter, Paul says nice things about these people. But right here, he says some pretty harsh stuff. Why? Well, Because if we have a problem, we need to know. And if it's bad, then we really need to know, right? Maybe some of you are in business and maybe you've read some of the books by Jim Collins. He's one of my favorite authors on greatness and leadership and organizational institutional excellence and good to great, great by choice, built to last, some of these kind of books. And one of the things he writes in this book, Good to Great, which is about how companies can go from being okay to really strong, is he says you have to confront the brutal facts. That's his phrase. You can't, you can't keep like pulling the wool over your eyes with your company and sort of acting like things are better than they are because if you don't acknowledge how bad they are, you can't do anything about them. And this is true on a personal level as well. We want to know what's wrong. A couple weeks ago, I had the, actually last week and I had this really like random health scare and I'm fine. Don't worry about me. But I like, I passed out. And then when I came to, like, I couldn't see anything. I was like temporarily blind. So it was a little bit freaky. So I go into the hospital and they run the CAT scan and the EKG and the EKG, of course, test your heart. And they come to me in the ER and they're like, well, the EKG came back irregular. Uh, do you have heart problems in your family? And I said, actually, yeah, I do. And they're like, well, I mean, do you want to kind of do some more tests? And I'm like, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I want to know, like, if my heart doesn't work, I want to know. And it turns out it was just sort of a weird picture they took, and they did the echocardiogram, and like I said, all is well. But in that moment, I'm thinking, yeah, like, if my heart doesn't work, I kind of need to know that because I need to plan my life accordingly. Friends, fam, according to this text, we have a problem. We do. We were made for something, to worship God and to enjoy him forever. 
made in his image to, to reflect like a mirror his goodness so that we can shine his light and his power and his love and his glory wherever we go. But we're missing the mark badly. The world is not in a great situation. That's not a hard thing to amen. That's not a hard thing to see. Anybody else notice that not all is well in our world today? I know last week y'all talked about some of the different things that characterize Generation Z. And man, it seems like at some level, moral chaos is, is kind of winning. I read one Varna study that said that only 32% of, uh, of those in Generation Z think that viewing pornography is wrong. That's like 68% that say it's fine. They're actually more likely to condemn not recycling or using too much electricity than they are to be, to condemn viewing pornographic images and scenes. Uh, but it's not just Generation Z. 74% of those surveyed in a different study surveyed who are under the age of 35. So this is like, a, you know, a decent portion of our population. 74% agreed with the statement that what works for you is the only truth you can know. I'm not even sure what that means. <laughs> and I'm not just trying to bag on young people. Like younger generations are, are probably more concerned with things like racism than some older generations. And that's, you know, kind of a big deal. But as much as anything today, it just seems like we're confused. I'm confused. What am I supposed to think about racial tension or or Donald Trump? What am I supposed to do about violence and injustices against women and against those who are who are who are who are under advantage? Like we're so confused as a culture that Jimmy Kimmel has become a voice of moral authority in our lives. <laughs> and I'm not even knocking him. I'm just saying, how did we get here? Like we remember the man show, my man. Like we, we remember, we know. And yet I think this shows us kind of where we're at a little bit. And we live in a world where, where this is documented. We live in a world where if you force your children to align themselves with their biological gender, there have been documented cases where the children are taken away from parents. We live in a world where you can't go to school or send your kids to school without fearing. You know what we fear when we send our kids to school. Now, I'm not trying to be an alarmist. And I'm convinced that the kingdom of God is going to be fine. And I think there's a lot of great things happening in 2018. But we a mess. And the particulars in Paul's world in the first century are different. But there's nothing new under the sun. And Paul's in diagnosis mode in this first bit of Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3. He's diagnosing. We all diagnose. We diagnose ourselves. This is why WebMD gets so many hits every day. We diagnose our culture. There's all sorts of diagnoses on offer, right? Like some people say, well, the problem is crime, and so the solution is punishment. And others will say, no, 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 the, the problem is ignorance, and so the solution is education. Or the problem is sickness, whether physical or mental, and so the solution is, is meds, medicine. Or maybe maybe the problem is, and we don't know what the problem is, but surely the solution has something to do with science and, and technology and, and progress. And we in rooms like this often say, no, the answer is spiritual. The, the, problem is, the problem is sin. Okay, cool, but like, what does that mean? And that's the question that Paul's answering. And he starts his answer in Romans 1. Y'all studied it last week. We were made to worship God, but we said no thanks. We don't want to believe in God because God kind of gets in the way. And so we prefer idols. They're so moldable and at least they seem to be. And somebody once said that the human heart is like an idol factory. I kind of like to think of it uh, as like one of those wobbly carts at Walmart. You know what I'm talking about? Like y'all probably don't have wobbly carts here in Bentonville. They probably like only the best carts for Bentonville, you know. But it, where I come from, like sometimes, occasionally, there's a cart that has a funky wheel. 
you know, and you're like trying to go down the aisle and no matter what you try to do, it's just like pulling you one. You're like hitting kids and old lady. Oh, sorry, ma'am. It's just the card. It's not me. The human heart is like a wobbly Walmart card. It's just bent toward idolatry, bent toward serving and trusting and loving something other than God. And Paul explains in Romans 1 that idolatry always breeds immorality. If you reject God, then then you're going to have just a huge mess on your hands. And he gives this laundry list of sins that he goes through, just a bunch of different things. And at this point in the church in Rome, where Paul's letter was first read, all the good people in the room are like, yeah, Paul! Bad people are so bad. Depraved, I tell you, depraved. Yeah, go get them, Paul. And Paul's like, them? You thought I was talking about them? I'm not done analyzing the problem yet. I'm just getting started. And Paul doesn't stop at the end of Romans 1 because he can't stop. Because getting us to acknowledge the presence of a problem is mission critical. So here's where we got to go next. Here's what we, what I must get. The problem is not just some. The problem is all. And that means that the problem is you and the problem is me. That's the burden of our text today. So let's dig a little bit deeper into what we find here. Uh, we saw where Paul is headed uh, in this Romans 3, 9 through 20, this statement that all are, are busted up and, and all are kind of thoroughly in, in, in trouble and, and wrong and rejecting God. Let's look at where we start. He's got all the moral people amening at the end of chapter 1. Don't forget, they're all just, yeah, pointing the fingers and thinking about their uncles and neighbors and all those bad people around. And then he just, look at what he does in Romans chapter 2. We're going to read chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. We'll break it up in a minute. Let's take in the whole thing first. He says, you therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you'll escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. Then verse 12. Says, for all who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. For indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they don't have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their conscience is also bearing witness and their thoughts sometimes accusing and at other times even defending them. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Best I can tell, Paul's point in this part of his letter is that no one should judge harshly because God is going to judge fairly. And he knows what we sometimes pretend isn't true. You are no better, he seems to say. 
And if you're thinking to yourself, haven't I heard this before? The answer is yes, probably from your grandmother or whoever it was that first told you. Everybody do this. Everybody point at somebody. Who was it that first told you? You know, every time you point at someone, one finger's pointing at them, but what do they say? But three fingers are pointing back at you. That's what I think, Paul, you guys aren't doing it. You guys aren't very, now you're afraid to participate because like earlier we just looked at how sinful everybody is. Point at somebody, point at me, right? Like you can point at me and how many fingers are pointing back at you? Three. I think that's kind of like what Paul's point is here. And so let's break it down. Let's look at the three fingers pointing to us from this text. First of all, Paul says, none of us is innocent. Not a one. Not a one. He said, but we love to play the judge, don't we? I do question for you. What, what's the commonality between watching um, like talent competitions, like The Voice or So You Think You Could Dance or whatever, and uh, watching award shows like the Oscars and watching sporting events? What's the kind of like, what, how many of you enjoy one of those three things? You, okay, it's good. Yeah, you can watch these things and they're relatively enjoyable. Most of us do. Well, what do these three viewing experiences have in common? Well, one of the things is they all allow us to play the judge. Best screenplay, I, for one, was not impressed with the dialogue, you know. They sing the song, you're thinking, ah, that was a little pitchy, you know, right there in the middle, kind of a little bit off, if you know what I mean. Or (laughs) how many times have you done this? How do you not see that passing lane? It is clear as day on my 58-inch 2160 HDR TV with multiple camera angles, like I can see the passing lane. How did you not see the passing lane, you know? And what's more, these, these experiences, these shows invite us to critique others for failing at things we could never dream of doing. One time, one time my wife was watching The Voice and I came through the room and I, I sat down and I listened to this song and it finished. And I remember saying, man, that was, that was kind of a train wreck. And then I remembered like, I'm tone deaf. <laughs> like, what do I know? Why do I deserve an opinion? On how this person sounded. Or, or I always laugh whenever I see professional basketball players like miss a dunk. You want to know how many times I've dunked? Yeah, you can count them on a hand with no fingers. All right, like zero. I can't, like if I even tried that, I wouldn't even get rejected by the rim. It would just be weird. Like, why did you just throw the ball at the bottom of the net? That was strange. <laughs> and yet here I am laughing at them. Or how many of you guys do this? We, oh gosh, we all do this. Fumbles, right? Like foot when you're, te- how many of you, and I, there's a lot of football fans, men and women in here. How many of you have been like, let's be honest with each other, angry, at the player on the team for fumbling a football. Like that's happened to you where you're like, how could you do that? How many of you have been angry before at that? Yeah, some of you. Now, next question, follow up to that. How many of you have ever tried to hold on to something that didn't have a handle when about a half a dozen professional athletes were trying to take it from you? Anybody? And I'm not necessarily blaming it on these things. I'm not blaming our culture for this. I think it's kind of built within us, but there are certain things we do. All this watching and judging probably plays to our worst tendencies to see the faults in others, but to ignore them in ourselves. Take a look again. I don't like this passage, so we should read it again. You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. And we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you'll escape God's judgment? (sighs) Such a strong statement, almost too strong. It can't be as bad as the people I hate. I don't take advantage of women or abuse children. I don't rob the poor to build homes I don't need. I don't openly tell God I'm just as good at him at running the world. What could Paul mean here? Well, what he says, to be sure, but what does it mean? 
Maybe he means like all of us have broken the law at some point, so we shouldn't act like we're totally innocent. Maybe he means that whatever tribe you're a part of, you can find somebody within that tribe who's broken every law, and so the group shouldn't sort of hold themselves up too high. Could be both of those things. I also think that part of what he's saying is is that while the symptom may be different, the underlying disease is the same. I mean, what is an abusive person except someone who uses other people to get what they want, who takes advantage of their advantage to fulfill selfish desires without caring about how it may hurt other people? Well, dang, now maybe I'm not as clean as I thought. And what is like a bad person? Whoever it is, you. what is a bad person if not someone who knows good from evil but decides that good isn't as fun or who sees the risk involved in trusting God and loving people and so instead decides to just opt to stay in control? Maybe, I, maybe I'm not so innocent. There's a reason Paul in his list earlier included both like disobeying your parents and inventing ways of doing evil. I know Mike talked about this. There's a reason why my lovely little seven-year-old princess daughter is lumped in with the crooks and dirty politicians. Because no one is innocent. No one. Second thing Paul says is, not only is none of us innocent, but none of us deserve God's favor. If you would, look at your neighbor real quick and just say something to them. Say, um, I don't deserve to be here. Now say, you don't either. (laughs) Yeah, it's always a lot more fun to say that. (laughs) This can be easy to forget once you've lived in God's blessing for a while. It can be really easy to get once God has started to transform your character and so that you do love the good and do the good and you're really reshaped. You're different and it's hard to remember you didn't get here on your own. You didn't deserve this. The reason you are let in the room is not because you're so wonderful. It's because God is gracious and patient and loving and merciful. You picture a family at dinner. This has probably happened at your house. It's happened at mine. There's a family at dinner, and, and so there's the mom, dad, a couple kids, right, whatever the situation is. And, and uh, older sister's kind of playing with her food, making a mess, not eating her vegetables, peas and carrots. She doesn't want them. And, and mama just gently says, uh, hey, um, sweetie, you know how we, we do this. you got to eat your vegetables, so go ahead and start eating them. And that uh, little girl, okay, fine, starts eating them. Mom is happy. Sister's happy. A couple minutes later, brother. He's on the other side of the table. He's not eating his vegetables. He's making a mess. And sister just screams with all of the authority of the wrath of Almighty God, eat your vegetables, sinner, you know? Like she's now right, so she gets to be the one who points out the just severity of his evil. We do this a little bit. God let me in, not because of righteous things I've done, but because of his mercy and patience and grace. So look back at your neighbor. Again, I'm not playing. You can hate me for the little games we play later. That's okay, but I still want you to play them. Look back at the person and say, if I can be here, you can be here. Some of y'all, that's like the first thing you've said to each other all day. (laughs) We can talk about that later. (laughs) Now I want you to picture whoever it is who you least think deserves to be in the room. Picture them in your head. Maybe it's an individual. Maybe it's a type of person who you just think there's no way There's no way God should love them. Now I want you to say out loud, if I can be here, you can be here. Because we're not here because we're not them. We're here because God grabbed hold of us and pulled us close. Last thing he says is none of us is going to escape the law standard. 
That's the point of the last section where he's talking about if you have the law, then you have to follow the law. If you don't have the law, you're still guilty because your conscience tells you what the law says. God has laid out his standard for us in the law. And I'd imagine most people in this room have probably heard of the Ten Commandments. And because this is the standard, we can kind of use this as a bit of a gauge to show the darker parts of our heart. It's not a fun exercise, but it can be a good one. You think about some of the commands that we think we're probably pretty good with. We'll not pick the easy ones that we know we commit, like coveting and and whatnot, and and maybe like worshiping other gods or something. But look at the second one. No graven images. That's the second command. Don't make like an idol and bow down to it. And we're like, I'm good. I don't even do that. Yeah, that's not me. We recognize like the issue is not just a bad sculpture. The issue is that they made these idols because they wanted a picture of God that they could control. So how about that? Like, does your Jesus look a lot like you? Does he eat like you, drink like you, vote like you, think like you? And if so, is there a chance maybe that you've taken the real Jesus and you sort of tweaked it a little bit and you bow down to your own version because it doesn't mess with your life as much? I think about the fourth command says, don't break the Sabbath. And this one, we're like, oh, we don't have to follow that because Jesus said you don't have to do it. And like, yeah, his point was, it's never just about just the day. It's not just about what you do on Saturday. It's about whether or not you work enough, but not too much. Because you got laziness on the one hand, which says, I don't want to take responsibility. And you got overworking on the other hand, which says, I think I'd like things better when I'm the one running the show all the time. I think like, I'm going to go ahead and work all the time because I don't really trust God to keep doing things when I'm not working. I don't know which one of the two you fall into. I know which one I fall into. I don't do so well by this one. Or there's uh, like six and seven, do not commit murder, do not, do not commit adultery. And uh, most of us are like, yeah, I'm good there. I'm good for, the, you know, there are some exceptions, but you know, no, don't forget that Jesus was very clear that the law was never just a list of rules, but it was the description of a certain kind of life. And he says, he says that if you've ever harbored anger and bitterness in your heart, then you've committed the mental act that manifests itself in murder. And he says, if you've ever looked at somebody to lust after them, then you've taken that step mentally, which under the right circumstances typically manifests itself in adultery. He says, you're, you're, you're not as innocent as you think. And I don't, I don't like looking at the law. I don't like it very much at all because it's not comfortable for me. Because I don't like, not only do I like not want to unnecessarily offend you, but I don't measure up well. I prefer not to think of myself as an idol-worshiping, faithless, murderous adulterer. <laughs> Like, that's not what I tend to, you know, put on my Twitter bio or send as the tagline on my email. But measured against the standard of God's holiness, maybe that's the truth. And Paul's point here is, it doesn't matter if you have the law or don't have the law. If you have the law, knowing it doesn't necessarily make you holy. you got to do it. And you don't do it as well as you pretend to. And if you don't have the law, you can't be like, oh, well, I don't know it. No, it's not going to work. It's like when you, you know, tell, I tell my son, Carson, buddy, don't throw that ball. He throws the ball. Dude, have a seat and give me the ball. Oh, I didn't hear you. Oh, I didn't whisper. God says, you know, you know, because your conscience tells you this, not that, and you do that. Every single person has. And all of this, this idea that none of us are innocent, and this idea that none of us deserves God's favor, and this idea that none of us will escape the law standard, all of this is designed to get us to a point where we stop acting and thinking of ourselves as superior and as fine, and we start acknowledging the depth of my problem, my issue, my need. I took my first ministry when I was 22 years old. It was a small country church in southwest Missouri, 
And the first week, this lady grabs me afterward, and she kind of gives me the laundry list on all the people in the church. It didn't take long because there was only like six families in there. But she talks to me about all their problems. And then she saves her least favorite family for last. And after she finished, she said to me, now, they're really the only ones that you need to be preaching to. And I remember when I heard that, I had two thoughts. My first thought was, are you serious? <laughs> like, are you really that blind to your own sin? And my second thought was, you remind me of somebody else I know. Me. But as little as I want to admit this, I am part of the problem. You are too. So stop hiding. I teach uh, Romans at the college. It's a senior course. And so the students, I have them write a letter to themselves their first day of high school. What would you say to yourself if you could? And it's fascinating how many of them, probably a majority of them, say something to the effect of, stop hiding. I know what you've done uh, because I'm the one who did it. And I also know that you're not going to, you're going to kind of bury it. And I wish you wouldn't have because the church can handle it and Jesus can handle it. And whatever stays hidden can't be healed. And if you keep these things from Jesus, you're actually stopping him from doing what's going on in, in, in what he wants to do in your heart. And I, and I do think that deep down, we, we all know at some level, like I'm not all good, but we bury our secrets beneath spiritual effort and religious commotion and, and, uh, and plastic smiles and pointed fingers. We forget that what remains hidden can't be healed. So come out of hiding. I literally can't say it better than Mike did last week. I wrote this down when I was listening to his message. He said, until you're willing to embrace and face your brokenness, you will not experience God's wholeness. Paul makes the point in chapter one and then goes on in chapters two and three to make sure that nobody thinks this is just a problem about them. I am part of the problem. Apart from Christ, I reject God whenever obedience gets in my way. And I use people to feed my own ego or career or happiness. I'm a lawbreaker, a rebel, a sinful person. Am I a victim of the sin of others? Sure, but I'm also a perpetrator in the stories of the people I was put here to serve. Apart from the Lord, I am broken and corrupt. I am foolish and deceitful. I deserve whatever wrath is coming my way, and I'm stuck. There's nothing I can do to fix myself. Self-help's not going to work for me because self is what got me into this mess. You know that clever saying, be the change you want to see in the world? You've heard this before. It's cute. It It sounds good. But, but, but apart from a redeemer, apart from a savior, it's dumb. Can we just acknowledge that together? Like, it's like going into a hospital and saying to all the patients, be the healing you want to see in this place. You can say it with whatever tone of voice you want to. It's still like almost cruel <laughs> if you think about it. Now, I believe that God made a way for you to be part of the solution. And you know what I think that is. You know what we believe together, that, that the solution is Jesus of Nazareth, Messiah, Savior, Redeemer, Lord. And it's hard. It's really hard to stop at 3 verse 20 because the good news actually comes in 321. And you're going to want to come back next week and hear the rest of this bit. Now, if you're in the room and you literally don't know what it means that Jesus is the solution, then find any of us today, and we'd be glad to lay it out for you. But otherwise, same time, same place next week, be here to hear. But for now, hear this from a stranger who has no business delivering such a message, except for the authority derived from the weird and wonderful word of God. You'll never be part of the solution until you humble yourself and acknowledge the extent to which you are part of the problem. And then immediately turn your eyes to the only one with the love and power to do something about it. Father God, we thank you for your word. Sometimes it's kind of feels like drinking water. 
It's immediately refreshing and goes in smooth. Other times it kind of feels like sandpaper. So I suppose we are supposed to say thank you for these parts. And to be honest, God, most of us can. Some of us are wrestling with you right now in terms of what we might do. We've not been real concrete with that, so may your spirit put into our minds right now the conversations that need to happen, whether with a spouse or a family or a a community group or or a pastor, whatever that may be, God. But uh, don't let us just sort of hear this text and, oh, yeah, okay, cool, move on. Uh, Move us by your spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.